If you have a Bible there, would you please turn to Exodus chapter 3, a familiar passage I'm sure to all of us, Exodus chapter 3, I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 17. Hopefully you are there, Exodus chapter 3, reading from verse 1. This is God's word. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals from your feet, from your feet for the place where you are walking is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, You will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, The God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and I have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And we thank the Lord for his word to us. A while back, I discovered that I belong to what has been called the me generation or the entitlement generation. The nature of this generation has been described in the somewhat provocative book by the psychologist Jean Twenge called Generation Me. And although it speaks in generalities, it says that my generation is marked by the following. 
On the one hand, by tolerance, confidence, open-mindedness, and ambition. And on the other hand, by disengagement, narcissism, distrustfulness, and anxiety. What seems to be consistent across the board is that we're an inconsistent generation. We spend more time thinking about ourselves and our own identities than any previous generation, and yet we're far less likely to have any understanding of who we are at all. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and other forms of social media have been created to allow us to create for ourselves false identities because we don't like the ones we've been born with. And unfortunately, these instruments for creating false versions of ourselves are now affecting the generation that came before as they too want to be something that they're not. So what's the answer to all of this? Well, you might be surprised that the great reformer John Calvin actually has something to say to it. At the beginning of his institutes, he says, nearly all the wisdom that we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. He goes on to say, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. And that's really what I want to do with our time together. In a sense, to ascend and look upon the face of God and in contemplating him, discover something about ourselves. Exodus chapter 3 has to be one of the most theologically rich pieces of scripture and we can't hope to do it justice in a single sermon. So what I want to do is focus in on two questions that are asked within our text. The first question is asked in verse 11 by Moses and it is, who am I? And then the other question directed towards God in verse 13 is in effect, who is he? So in other words, we're going to look at the character of man, who am I? And then we'll look at the character of God, who is he? As we have said, we live at a time where people are confused about their own identities and about who God is. And I believe that Exodus 3 can help us find answers to these important questions. And if Calvin is right, that a true and sound wisdom consists of an answer to these questions, then we need to pay careful attention to what the text tells us and how we might apply it to ourselves. So let's take a look first at the character of man. Who am I? The somewhat casual opening of Exodus 3, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, actually sums up a period of around 40 years in which Moses has been sojourning in Midian. As we encounter Moses here, he's no longer a prince in Egypt, but a very ordinary and humble shepherd. In fact, now he's an old man disconnected from his past in the Egyptian court and somewhat disconnected from the plight of his own people. And yet it is here that God will call Moses to the most extraordinary task, still to do the work of a shepherd, but no longer a shepherd of his father-in-law's flock. Rather, he's going to be a shepherd of God's people. And interestingly, the journey we see him take in verse 1 as he leads the sheep through the wilderness and to the foot of Mount Horeb, it's the same journey he will take on a much grander scale as he leads the people of Israel to the very same mountain where they too will encounter God revealed through fire. And as we look at what our text tells us about Moses, I believe it can tell us a lot about ourselves and who we are, especially in relationship to God. 
And to help us do that, I want to pick out a couple of things the text says about Moses and by consequence says about us as well. And the first thing that we discover from our text is that man is sinful. As Moses approaches Mount Horeb in verse 2, the angel of the Lord calls to him from within the flames of a burning bush. Moses' gaze is transfixed on this extraordinary sight as he sees that the bush is on fire, but it's not burned up. So he decides to head over and take a closer look. But as he's doing so, God calls to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. All he can do is reply, here I am. And God tells him not to come any closer, but to remove the sandals from his feet. For the ground on which he is walking is holy ground. I think the implication is clear, isn't it? The ground is holy because of the one who's dwelling there, but Moses is not. And we know that from Moses' reaction to the revelation that the one who's speaking to him is the God of his father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look at his reaction, verse 6. It says, at this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The echoes of the Garden of Eden should be ringing loud and clear. You'll remember that whenever Adam fell into sin in Genesis 3, it says that he hid himself from God because he was afraid. The very same words used of Moses here. And in fact, this is the consistent reaction to the felt presence of God throughout Scripture. Take, for instance, Isaiah chapter 6, where the prophet sees God in his throne room and he cries out, Woe to me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Or think again of Luke chapter 5, where Peter is encountering Jesus for one of the first times on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. Whenever he sees Jesus bring about a miraculous catch of fish, he cries out, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Or again, take the final book of the Bible, Revelation, the first chapter, where John encounters the risen and glorified Christ, and it says that he fell down at his feet as though dead. But of course, this brings up an important question, doesn't it? If this is the consistent reaction to the felt presence of God throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, why does it seem so completely alien in our own day and age, even within the church? A fearful reverence of the holy God and a recognition of our own sinfulness seems to be completely missing today. No one seems to feel the weight of their own sin anymore, much less understand the fear of the Lord something that we're called to cultivate throughout Scripture. In fact, Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Certainly for the Christian, that fear is not meant to be a cowering or trembling fear before some kind of wicked master. Rather, it's the awe and just reverence that comes from the Holy God whose purity only serves to amplify our impurity. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we ought to be condemning ourselves for our feelings. But if we really want to understand who the holy God is, then we need a healthy recognition of our sinfulness before him. It seems that today nobody recognizes sin as sin anymore. And I think that the common working assumption of most people, even within churches, is that we are by nature basically good people. But that's not the teaching of Scripture, and it wasn't Moses' experience here. You see, it's only those who recognize their sin who can bring that sin to God and have it pardoned, forgotten, and removed by Christ. 
It was Jesus himself who said, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Like Moses, we need that honest and realistic assessment of our sinfulness before God if we're ever going to be used in his service. So we see, first of all, that man is sinful according to this passage. But as we go on to see, man is also dependent. God, seeing Moses trembling before him because of his sin, doesn't just leave him there. Instead, he now reveals to him his supreme loving kindness and mercy. In verse 7, God says that he has seen the plight of his people and he's going to do something about it. He's going to come down and rescue his people from Egypt and bring them into their own land, a land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, he's going to take them from slavery to freedom, from lack to abundance. But what Moses is not expecting is that God is going to use him, sinner and dependent as he is, to be the one to lead the people out. And don't you find that absolutely extraordinary? God, seeing this man trembling before him, doesn't dismiss him as unfit or unworthy because of his sin. Rather, he calls him to participate in his mission, just as he still calls humble sinners to go with the gospel today. Nevertheless, God's ability to look past Moses' feelings don't seem to be shared by Moses himself. For whenever he hears the revelation that the one who is calling him is calling him to go and lead the people out of Egypt. He asks that question of verse 11. Who am I? In a sense, he's asking, who am I that you would send me? I'm not worthy or adequate in myself. And you know, in a very real sense, Moses was right. If you think about it, he's now an 80-year-old man who had fled from Egypt some 40 years before to become the shepherd of another man's flock. In chapter 4, we read of how he found it difficult to speak in public, something we would think would be a prerequisite for any good leader. And think about the magnitude of what God is calling him to do. He's to lead the people out in defiance of the most powerful human being on the planet at the time, the Egyptian pharaoh. It's little wonder that he would ask the question, who am I? I wonder how many times have we said something similar to God's. Lord, you know my sin and my failing. Who am I that you would use me? If we have that healthy recognition of our own sinfulness that we need, it can at times make us feel unworthy and inadequate of being used by God. But that's why we need to hear the Lord's answer to our inadequacy rather than the world's answer. If you think about it, whenever you doubt your ability to do a particular task, what does the world around you tell you? You need to believe in yourself, trust in your own abilities. But that's not God's answer to our inadequacy. Look at how he answers Moses' doubting question, who am I? God doesn't say to him, as we might imagine, well, actually, you're the perfect man for the job. You were 40 years in Egypt learning the language and the political theory. You even reached a, an important part, point in the court of Egypt, didn't you? No, rather God simply says to him, verse 12, I will be with you. Sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? But think about what God's saying to him. Up to this point, Moses has been protesting that he's not good enough to be used by God. He's not, he shouldn't have been picked by God for this task. And God's reply to him, according to Alex Mateer and his paraphrase, is this. Of course you're not up for the job. 
I knew that when I chose you for it. The point is not your ability, but mine. As we say, Moses could have come up with a thousand reasons why he wasn't good enough and we can do the same thing. But what was the one thing that Moses forgot? The thing that we so often forget? God himself. We are not good enough, adequate, or worthy in ourselves, but God is. We're finite and dependent creatures. God is infinite and independent, and he's the one telling Moses, I will be with you. Now, I'm sure there are some of you in this congregation who don't feel that you can be used by God. Your conscience accuses you, tells you all the reasons why you're not good enough. Or maybe you resonate with Moses' situation here because you know God's calling you to a particular task. Maybe to share the gospel with that friend, family member, or work colleague. But like Moses, you get tongue-tied and you're not a good evangelist. Or maybe you've reached that stage in your life where other people want to put you out to pasture. It's time you retire to let the next generation come through. But remember, Moses was 80 years old when God called him to his most important ministry. We need to remember what God says to Moses. He says to us today, I will be with you. And we know that because Jesus said to his failing and inadequate disciples, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. God is doing a wonderful work of redemption in our world today that's far greater than rescuing the people from Egypt. And he's calling us sinners and inadequate and dependent as we are to be involved in that mission. And he reminds us again that his grace is sufficient for us, for his power is made perfect in our weakness. And that's the right point to transition from looking at the character of man to that more important subject, the character of God. Who is he? I think that today people don't like to be told what they ought to think about God. They like to decide for themselves what God is like, but inevitably they end up making God in their own image. He just so happens to be a God who agrees with everything that they think is important, and he also wants to fulfill all of their desires. And we even see that in the church at times as well. People don't like what God has revealed of himself in the scriptures. And we've seen the mess that's happening in the Church of England at the moment. You hear people saying things like, oh, I just don't believe God is like that. Or I don't think that a good God would do or say such a thing. But the problem with that God is he's of absolutely no help when it comes to troubled times. And more importantly, he just doesn't exist. If we want to know who the true and living God is, then we need to let him reveal himself to us according to his word. And as we saw with the character of man, our text tells us at least a couple of things about the character of God. And the first one of those, in parallel to what we thought about man, is that God is holy. If there's one reason why people don't recognize their sin anymore, it's inevitably a result of having lost sight of God's holiness. But what does that actually mean? Well, to be holy at the most basic level means to be set apart. We see it in our passage here as the ground on which Moses is walking is said to be holy. Now, that doesn't mean that it's a morally pure piece of ground, but rather that in that moment, along with the bush, it's been set apart to be the dwelling place of God. And anything that is said to be holy is such by its relationship to God. Because God, by his very nature, is holy. 
He said, apart from all that is evil and wicked and corrupt. As Habakkuk 1.13 says of God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate the treacherous. I think the pastor and writer Von Roberts expresses God's holiness really well when he says, the holiness of God is the godness of God. It's what sets him apart from everyone else, his moral perfection. And one of the ways that God's holiness is often expressed in the Bible is through the image of fire. We see it here in the burning bush, but elsewhere in Exodus with the fire that comes down on Mount Sinai at the giving of the law or the pillar of fire that hovered above the tabernacle leading the people through the wilderness by night. As we've already said with the children, in both the Old and New Testament, God is called a consuming fire, which is a refiner's fire that removes all impurity and dross. Do you know that if sinful humanity was to enter into the naked presence of God, we would be utterly consumed by that fire. But God has made a way for sinful people to be able to remain in his presence to approach him. And we see it here in this passage as God tells Moses not to come any closer, but then tells him to remove his shoes from his feet as a means of being able to remain there. God evidently wants Moses to be there. And in fact, whenever God calls out in verse four, Moses, Moses, this is what's called in Hebrew a repetition of endearment. Moses would have understood the one who was calling to him really cared for him. Nevertheless, he had to accept by faith the means of approach that God had given to him. And the same is true today. The final and only means of approach for us to enter into the presence of the holy God is the Lord Jesus Christ. And like Moses, we need to accept that means by faith. And notice both the great holiness as well as the humility of God in this scene. God humbles himself by entering into a bush that's planted in the dirt and rocks, the dwelling place of animals like sheep and goats and all the mess that comes with them. And yet his holiness is displayed in the fire burning in the bush. The fact that it doesn't consume the bush tells us of God's great mercy and his restraint. And the whole thing is the most wonderful picture of what God would do in the coming of Christ. For God would take on human flesh, be born surrounded by animals and make his dwelling with sinners. Jesus, like the bush, was unstained by the sin that was around him, and yet he chose to dwell with those he could have separated himself from. And the reason that we are not consumed in our sin and unholiness is because Christ has borne that sin in his own body upon the tree. If we want to grasp the full majesty of God's love for us, then we need to be first gripped by his supreme holiness. Again, unfortunately, we live at a time where people want to pit God's holiness against his love. And I've heard people actually say, well, you have a God who is holy, but I have a God who is loving. And yet such a division in God's character is found nowhere in Scripture. Because God is both perfectly holy and perfectly loving. And in fact, God's love is most supremely displayed in his holiness, punishing sin upon the cross. And yet, as we have said, he bore that punishment upon himself. For as Paul said to the Corinthians, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. What incredible mercy and love that God would die for sinners. And more than that, that he would even call us family and friends. 
And that brings us to the last aspects of God's character that we see here. And that is that God is merciful and faithful. In verses 7 to 10, God tells Moses that he has seen and heard the plight of the people and he's concerned about their suffering. Notice how this holy and transcendent God is also intimately involved in the lives of his people. He sees, he hears, and he is passionately concerned about our suffering. That's why God's going to come down and rescue his people from Egypt and bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. In this, God shows not only his great compassion and mercy, but also his steadfast faithfulness. And that's because this is not the first time God has said these words. He had spoken the very same words to Abraham centuries before. In Genesis 15, 13, God had told Abraham that some of his own descendants would become slaves in Egypt, but after 400 years, he would lead them out into the land of Canaan. And in fact, God had told Abraham that he was going to remove from the land the very same people groups mentioned in verses 8 and 17. And what that reminds us of is the fact that no matter how long it takes, God will always be faithful to his promises. Of course, we might legitimately ask the question, well, why wait 400 years? Isn't that a bit excessive? Well, God had told Abraham why it would take so long. He said it's because the sin of the current inhabitants of the land had not reached its full measure. In other words, God was giving the people in the land of Canaan an opportunity to repent of their wickedness, even though he knew they would only go from bad to worse. And the same is very much true today. For as the Apostle Peter says in his second letter, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What mercy God shows to undeserving sinners and what faithfulness he displays in fulfilling his promises to us. And the reason that he can fulfill those promises and remain faithful is because by his very nature, he is unchanging. Unchanging in his love, mercy, and faithfulness towards his people. And not only do we see that displayed in rescuing his people from their sin, but also in the name by which he reveals himself to Moses in this passage. In verse 13, when Moses is inquiring into the meaning of God's name, he's met with this startling reply, verse 14. I am who I am. But what does that actually mean? Well, the Hebrew of that verse could legitimately be translated in three different ways. It could have a past sense, I have been who I have always been. The present sense that we have here, I am who I am. Or even a future sense, I will be who I will be. And I believe all three speak of truths about God. For that past sense reminds us that God is the same God he has always been. And the fact that he is called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob shows he's a God of committed relationships. The present form that we have here, I am who I am, reminds us that God is self-determining, self-sustaining. He does not change. He can't be moved by circumstance, but is totally dependable. And also that future sense reminds us that God has a purpose for the future. And that purpose involves rescuing his people from slavery. In other words, God is constant and consistent. He is dependable and faithful. He is a personal God, a God who is with us, and one whose steadfast love endures forever. 
As the writer George Athos so aptly puts it, he is dynamic and active. He's consistent yet not predictable. He is uncontainable and yet knowable. And it's this God who called Moses at the burning bush, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who calls us to enter into his mission, to know that he is with us and that one day we will be with him in a fashion we have not yet begun to comprehend. As Jesus, the great I am in human flesh said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and is to come the Almighty. So like Moses, let us come, sinners and dependent as we are, to a God who is holy, who is with us, who's sufficient to meet our every need, And let us come to him with boldness and confidence through the shed blood of Christ that makes us holy and blameless in his presence. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this reminder from your word, both of who we are before you, but also who you are toward us. We thank you that as the holy God, Lord, you are the one who made the difference to rescue us from our sin. And not only did you call us to yourself, you have changed our status and identity completely. For we are chosen and loved by you. We are your children, thanks to what Christ has done. Help us to go from here with a better clarity as to who we are and who you are, and to share that with others that we encounter. And help us whenever we feel insufficient to remember those wonderful words, I will be with you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.